Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Salvador Brigman, founder of the popular blog, Crowdcrux, which has been cited by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, CNN, and more. He's written 10 books, including the Kickstarter launch formula, and he's a YouTuber, podcaster, owns several websites about crowdfunding. He's also the new host of the Funding the Dream podcast. Salvador, welcome to the binge. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me. I love the name too. You got the alliteration going on. <laughs> that was the plan. Yeah. Hey, I, was, I actually wanted to add at the end of that is, is there anything else? Like what else are you doing? You got so much on your plate, man. I gosh, I, uh, I don't know how you find the time, but certainly when uh, you're kind of a master of your domain here, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's uh, a passion makes it very, very easy, doesn't it? Well, I mean, like, it takes time to, you know, put together quality content and I've been doing it for eight years. So it's not like I just like snapped my fingers <laughs> and like all this came about, you know? Sure. Um, so like books take time to write and all these things. So, you know, I'm really passionate about teaching and sharing. And, you know, that's why when you sent out the invitation to be on this show, I really wanted to share as much as possible when it comes to people that are trying to launch their games and any way that I can be of value or help them raise more money, you know, I'm happy to and happy to answer your questions. Well, you know, uh, when I first uh, kind of saw your face or your mug was when uh, two years ago, I was actually working on a campaign and uh, I was just like anybody else on YouTube, right? Looking for typing in Kickstarter tips, tips, you know, Kickstarter, uh, you know, crowdfunding, building an audience. And you kept popping up over and over and over again. So uh, I want to, you know, start by thanking you for your, con you know, contributions to the the community. I know there's a lot of people that watch your videos and uh, and get a lot of help from those. So uh, so Thank let me you. Start by yeah, saying I appreciate thanks. that. Thank and you. And that actually extends into the Funding the Dream podcast. So, you know, most people who follow that podcast, which is an insanely popular podcast, uh, was launched and created by Richard Bliss. He retired uh, near the beginning of this year, and uh, now you're the new host. So, how did that come about? Did you know Richard, or like, how did you guys connect and and you kind of take over the reins? Yeah, I mean, I've always known Richard. Um, I think he started a little bit before me in the industry. I got started in 2012. So we've always been aware of each other. Yeah. And um, I think we kind of have a mutual respect when it comes to people who have been around for so long in the industry. Yeah, because it is very difficult. And you see lots of people come and go over the years. So I think that, um, you know, I call him like the legendary Richard Bliss, yeah. because he's really built to me what's one of the pillars in the crowdfunding industry. And when I heard or saw that he might be retiring that like, it almost was like a weird soft spot in my heart where I'm like, no, man, like you can't do that. Like there's such good content here. We're helping so many people. Um, so that's really my motivation of wanting to, to you know, become a host of that show is that it's so important. It's like part of the history of crowdfunding to me. Right. Yeah. I know that sounds kind of nerdy, but it's completely true. And it's so valuable to people out there who are hungry and searching for information. You know, that's great that there are shows like yours out there because most people are just flying in the dark, man. Yep. They don't really know how to go out there and create a tabletop. They don't know how to market themselves and they love what they do. And they're so passionate. And there's just that small missing piece that can lead them into doing this for a full-time pursuit or turning their passion into profit, you know? And yeah, I think, I think it's, so it, valuable. it's easy to get kind of buried in the memes out there because there's a lot of these, uh, you know, pages and groups are, are really becoming kind of meme oriented. And uh, that was one of the reasons we, we created Board Game Binge was we wanted to, 
take some of the learnings. And quite frankly, you know, everybody I, I interview is I'm, I'm, le- I'm trying to learn for myself, right? I'm trying to learn something new. Yeah, and definitely. why not, you know, record that and put that in a form where other people can kind of consume that content as well. So, um, you know, certainly the uh, funding the dream, I would say to anybody out there that is launching a Kickstarter, you know what, subscribe to that podcast and go back and listen to some of the back catalog as you kind of catch up because there is just tons and tons of content there for consumption that every single episode, you will learn something that's going to help you become uh, that much better when you do your Kickstarter. Um, mm. so let's, let's start kind of, I want to roll the clock back a little bit and just, where did, where did this all start? Like, I, I know there's kind of your persona, which we see online, but let's get kind of behind that. How did this kind of all come about? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I'm just a normal guy like everyone else. Right. So, um, I got started when I was in college, I was basically doing a mini econ thesis and comparing different categories on Kickstarter. So you have like tabletop games, right? You have gadgets, you have people doing more creative stuff like dance category, publishing. And the way that Kickstarter was working back in the day was they were giving you statistics in aggregate, right? So like, what are the success percentages? You know, they're talking about what do you have to do if you're a project creator? And just kind of naturally, I don't think that's really good because I've always struggled in my life with getting very broad advice. And usually it's wrong. Whenever it's a generic advice, it's usually wrong because there's so many specific cases. And I was like, you know what? Probably running a tabletop is very different from doing a physical gadget, which is different from a creative project. So my whole like mini econ thesis was around that and figuring out what are the variables that affect success depending on your category. And I just kind of started to publish some of my findings online. You know, I love writing. I love teaching. And Lo and behold, people out there were searching for that kind of information, right? And it kind of started with my blog. And then in, in 2015, I started my podcast. I think a year or two later, I started my YouTube channel. So I've just been kind of trying to share with you what I think they haven't been shared, which is what's happening behind the scenes with major projects. Um, how do you actually get funded? You know, How do you get attention? How do you get strangers to support what it is you're doing? How do you have a complete stranger want to actually buy something that you've created and have never talked to you and met you before? I think that's really weird, right? For someone to do that oh, yeah. and to, to sort of decode that, demystify that um, and figure that out for people. That's kind of what's been my like origin, if you will. No, that's cool. And then what would you say would be kind of the, and we're not going to get into your entire, uh, your entire uh, lessons here, but what's one thing you would say that, um, that, that most people should consider right out of the gate when they, when they start this process? For tabletop creators, I think it's an understanding of business and how business works, right? Because you you fall in a few different camps. Like you could have someone who's really good at figuring out gameplay, right? Or someone who's really good at artwork or someone who just enjoys playing and is enthusiastic and is a hobby. And they tend to want to give really good deals to other people or they want to create a game for everyone and they want to have like all this feedback incorporated. And, and the problem is that it becomes this weird like Frankenstein monster. And um When it comes to a game, you want to create something that's very specific, that's niche, that's fun, that goes into a genre, which is sometimes a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. And also when it comes to the marketing, getting really tired about who this is for, you know, what kind of game is it? And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with is not knowing how to create a business around this hobby that they have. And that's why they maybe do one Kickstarter and then they kind of go and do something else, right? Or they don't even get to the Kickstarter stage yet. It just kind of stays an idea in their head because they've never hired an artist before. You know, they've never done something like asking people for money or putting a product up there for sale or making a Facebook page, right? Really simple yeah. stuff when you think about it, but people get kind of bogged down in the mechanics of it. So I think that's really one big thing is understanding how to turn 
a hobby like that and a craft into into a business and knowing how to promote it and market it and those types of things. Now you have a course uh, that uh, on Kickstarter, and so how does that that course work? Or is it like a free course, or is it something that's a, like a paid model, or what's that all about? Well, I've, I have a few different courses out there. Um, probably the best, you know, most well-known thing is the book I wrote, the Kickstarter launch formula. Mm. So that's on Amazon. I also have an audible book, the Kickstarter launch formula. And really what that kind of went down to was trying to create like a paint by numbers formula almost for putting together a campaign, no matter what the category is. Right. And what are the things you kind of have to hit on? What are the levers you have to pull to get people to take action? Um, how do you do things like a pre-launch? A pre-launch was not a thing all the time. Like that's sort of a newer thing a lot of people now know about. But when I was just getting started, like no one knew what a pre-launch was, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of people didn't even put videos on Kickstarter like way back in the day, right? <laughs> so it's kind of like the the nitty gritty of how do you actually um, put into the into like physical space, the campaign, how do you create the rewards? How do you do the pre-launch? How do you emotionally get people excited with the buzz, get them ready to take action? And then like the different stages of a campaign, because not just launching it, it's like you launch it and then there's that sort of five day stage. And then you kind of go into the Kickstarter slump of death, I call it. (laughs) And then you have like the the ending stages of when urgency is increased. So like there's those whole stages as well, kind of almost like a a rocket ship taking off, you know, it's like different stages as it's leaving the, the atmosphere. So that's kind of really the, what I put a lot of into the Kickstarter launch formula book is like talking about all of that. It's a revert. They call it the reverse bell, I guess, right? Where you have that kind of slump of darkness uh, where you get lots and lots of uh, hits right up front. Then things trickle in for the next few weeks. And then near the last kind of 48 hours, you get the mad dash where everybody rushes back in. Um, a lot of people I've talked to, developers, creators, uh, publishers, uh, they've all kind of said the same thing that, the first time around, they were never prepared for how hard that hit them, right? When they hit that slump. Is there is there anything you cover off in some of your materials to help people kind of navigate that that expectation that, okay, you know, hang tight, don't worry. You know, when, when you, this thing is going to dive, you know, uh, mid-campaign and it's okay. And here's some tools maybe to kind of help yourself come out of the back end of that faster or? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's like the the psychological side of preparing for it, right? And knowing that it's going to happen and planning things like media outreach or even building your social media ahead of time. So you have multiple avenues to promote, right? I think that's kind of like, that's kind of obvious. Um, Some of the not so obvious stuff, you know, I think one of the biggest topics that's debated most is this idea of stretch goals, you know, especially when it Mm. comes to tabletops, right? Should you include them? Should you not? Should you have add-on? Should you not? Should you collect shipping like before the campaign when it's running or should you do it after so that Kickstarter doesn't get their fee, right? So there are all these little like micro variables that you, you can decide on. But at the end of the day, it's really about creating and maintaining excitement and finding ways to do that. And for a reason for someone to almost feel like when they're on the page, they're like almost playing a game. It's like fun. It's like you're almost a part of the community, right? And this thing you want to tune in, just kind of see what's happening, right? So it's about maintaining attention, drawing people back in, continuing to arouse excitement. Um, And there are a lot of ways, of course, that you can do that beyond just stretch goals and add-ons. Other things are like having strategic announcements that you're going to have um, in the middle of the project. So like the last um, big project I was coaching on was IR Arcade, which is basically this game um, development system that you can play a bunch of old school retro games. Okay. And um, it's a lot of fun you, and you can stream the games and like all that kind of stuff. But they had certain announcement that they held secret until the middle of the campaign, knowing that there was going to be the slump. 
And then when they announced them like a new skin for the game look and feel, people went wild, right? And they ended up raising like $600,000 for this thing. Wow. So you can be like selective about what people see externally and what the team knows about internally as well to kind of go get through that middle stage. When you're consulting on uh, these campaigns, how far in advance are you guys mapping out kind of the flow of how the campaign is going to go? Like, are you starting six months ahead, three months ahead, a year? It kind of depends, right? It kind of depends on the client. Cause like, um, I'll have some coaching students who are like, Hey dude, I want to run a campaign in like six months, but I know that I want to bring you on now. Like, what do we have to do? Right. Mm-hmm. And what's the timeline going to look like? What do we have to get done that we have this much time? How can we do organic versus paid? You have other people who are like, dude, you know, I'm running a campaign in, in two weeks. Right? Yeah. It's like, what, what can I do with that time? And Delay it's always campaign. like <laughs> Delay the campaign. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like a, it's almost like a seesaw, right? So you, yeah. on the one side of the seesaw, you have time and the other side, you have money. And the less time you have, the more money you have to put into the campaign yeah. because that means you have to do a lot more paid marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And you do these kinds of ways in order to like inject cash almost to make things happen really quickly. When you have a lot of time, it's a lot easier to do organic marketing, to build up your social media, to build up email lists, like all that kind of stuff, right? So it's kind of like the seesaw almost. That's a good analogy, actually. It's true. You know, it's, uh, you know, the the ones that really seem to crush uh, their campaigns are the ones that started building that audience pretty far in advance. And And uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. It goes even further, and this is a bit more in the, the physical product category, but it goes even further to the design of the game, right? And sort of streamlining even things like how is packaging going to work, um, the miniatures, are you going to release new miniatures during the middle of the game or like, you know, there's so many variables, right? Mm -hmm. But you can even think so further out, like the actual design of the game, right? And how that's going to impact the marketing in a sense. Have you, uh, with your book that you've written, and so this book was written, what, five years ago, four years ago? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, around there. Now, Kickstarter has changed quite a bit since then. Has there been any volume twos or second editions you've been working on at all? Or, um, I'm doing updates more so to the book. So there are definitely a lot of changes, but you would be surprised at the number of similarities as well because human psychology honestly doesn't change very much over the years. If you go and you look at advertising, if you've ever read a book on advertising, which is really boring, but like actually super interesting if you're a nerd like me, you'll notice that a lot of the effective ads that worked in 1930 are the ones that work today, right? Are the ones that work on social media. Um, A lot of like direct response advertising, for example, if you read like David Ogilvy or like those kind of old school advertising titans, they're writing incredible ad copy that you can use today. And they are used today by marketers. Right. So it's, it's really almost like psychology doesn't change when it comes to buying behavior, more so functionality of sites change. Right. Yeah. So you open up things like, you know, the ability to, you know, have an add on or the ability to do this other thing or, you know, Indiegogo, like a seeker perk. Right. Like those things change with functionality. But yeah. the real reasons why people buy products don't really change, honestly. That's fair. And in terms of the platform itself. So you're saying when it first kicked off, there wasn't a lot of, um, um, you know, pre-launch activity there, you know, videos weren't a thing, stretch goals and, 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 um, uh, you know, bonus levels like that was even added on in, you know, in the years afterwards, it wasn't really that much out of the gate. Have you seen, in your opinion, would you say that for, at least for board games specifically, 
it pretty much has to be a retail ready version of that game going to Kickstarter in order to be successful today versus maybe five, six years ago where you could come in with kind of a rough prototype saying, I need your money to help me finish this. You almost have to come in with that vision of how this is already Mm -hmm. almost like people can visualize it as being a finished game. That's a good question. Um, I think it's definitely a change with, with the caliber of marketing, right? Mm. Like it's, it's so hard to compete nowadays. If you don't have a high caliber of artwork, you don't have a high caliber of things you can put on the page and like video, you can obviously do voiceover and stuff like that with tabletops, I think. Um, but I think the days of like just having a really rough sketch kind of game are definitely over. Yeah. But at the same time, there, there aren't necessarily that many st- steps between having a rough prototype of a game and being able to have Kickstarter, right? It's yeah. just like a little bit more delayed in that process, I feel. So it just means that you almost have to be competing with these people who do have these kinds of assets, right? So for you, I don't think it has to be like a retail ready game necessarily, but it definitely has to look like almost a finished polished product. So there's externally what you see and there's like internally what's happening, right? Yeah. So the marketing has to look like, wow, this thing is amazing. Like I want to own it. But behind the scenes, obviously, you don't necessarily have to have it fully retail ready. You know, there could be missing pieces, if you will, of the puzzle with that. Yeah. What would you say is one of the biggest mistakes that you've seen people make on their Kickstarters as of late? The biggest mistake? Um, I would say probably not knowing how to do paid marketing would be a really big one. Um, Not having the budget for paid marketing is another one. And then not having any kind of uh, urgency baked into your marketing. So the big reason why people take action is urgency. And, you know, we know that already scientifically just from the first days when you're launching early birds, like fly out the window. Right. And that's because of urgency. People need to take action now. End of the campaign, there's a spike. Why? Urgency, right? People take action now for the campaigns, they're going to miss it. So you need to think about ways to incorporate urgency into your marketing. And that's kind of one of the things that I see a lot of people missing out on is like people think it's cool, but why should they take action now kind of thing, right? That would be one. And then I would say another with the paid marketing, like it's so difficult sometimes when you have more of like a a creative, entertaining style um, project, like a game how do you do paid marketing around that? Cause you're not like solving a problem as yeah. much. Right. And, and that's really the trick. Like that's a bit of the mystery is figuring that out for your specific product. But that's something where if you get paid marketing, right, like you can supercharge your campaign pretty easily. If you don't get it right, it's like, it could be a struggle cause you're mainly relying on organic marketing. Right. Yeah. And like how you rank on Kickstarter, the, the assets you build up before the campaign. So if you can get, you know, solve that problem, that Rubik's cube, that will really significantly help your project. Would you say that um, when people go into this who maybe don't understand how to do uh, paid marketing, there are third-party services out there. I mean, we've interviewed some of them on here. Green Inbox is an example of one. There's uh, uh, Joel Ope is another one or Joel Up. Um, are these things people should consider or do you think they can get there without engaging those, those third-party players that are teams kind of behind the promotion yeah i mean i I think we should definitely consider them um i'm kind of of the the frame of mind that you should learn things first and then outsource them 
So you should at least have like a, a rudimentary idea of how paid marketing works. You don't have to know like all the specifics and stuff, but you should at least learn a little bit about like, okay, what is this company going to be doing? Why are they valuable? Why is that adding value to my campaign? Otherwise, yeah. you know, you could really easily be tricked to giving money to someone that's like not even going to help. Right. Yeah. So at least have a sense of where are the marketing channels right now that are delivering for campaigns? Um, what are ads kind of looking like a little bit? Why is it that people are, you know, engaging with certain types of ads? Just do a little bit of research there. And then I think you can probably either outsource it or bring on teammates or figure that out, that problem. In terms of efficiency for spend, I've heard some say that, you know what, put it all into Facebook ads, you know, the other stuff, banner ads and things like this, although they can be effective, um, they're not going to be as effective or as efficient as like an ad spend on Facebook. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it really depends on the product, right? Um, I'm kind oh, for of for board game specifically. Yeah, it, it depends on the game, right? Because certain mm. games sell really well, other ones don't, right? And certain games sell well in certain environments, and other ones don't. So it's kind of hard to say. But I'm kind of of the opinion that I don't have many strong opinions when it comes to paid marketing. I like have hunches and intuition, and then I look at the results. And it's really easy to just run a quick test and see is it doing well or is it not? Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that. So every paid marketing campaign, you should have a testing phase of some sort where you're testing out. Okay. Let's try it with banner ads. Let's try it here. Let's try it there. And you do that in the pre-launch. Right. And yeah. then you see from the test, okay, we got really good results on this one website or on board game geek or whatever, or we got really good results with Instagram or this other site or Facebook. Right. Then you double down on that. Like yeah. it's kind of like common sense in that way, but that only happens by trying things out and testing in that phase. And for those listening by, by the pre-launch um, specifically, you're going to send that ad, you're going to send the person through to somewhere. Um, my, my perspective is you probably want to send them to your pre-launch Kickstarter page to opt in with the notify me button, or would you push them somewhere else? Do you think? Um, there, there are a lot of places you could push them. I mean, you could push them to even just like your, your Facebook page, right? Um, you could push them to opt into an email list. You could push them to a Facebook group. You know, you could push them to a Discord server. Um, you know, there are a lot of places you can, you can do that, I think. So it's really about understanding like where the community of your, your game is and where they interact most. How do they get their news? How do they get their communications? And you push them to those kinds of sources. Now you're someone that's constantly, uh, you know, every video do it, it's a, it's a new lesson. And now you've been doing this for quite a few years. Um, but you're, I'm sure you're learning as you go, right. You're, you're constantly learning things and, and the industry is changing. What's something new that you've learned in the past, you know, few weeks that, um, that maybe you didn't know that now you're, you're starting to employ even in, in your practice. Um, so I can give you two. I might, I can give you one about like crowdfunding. I can give you one more in like general business, if sure. that makes sense. Oh, of course. So with, with well, I'll actually start with the business one. So with business, like that, cause that one came to mind first. Um, there, there's so much to be said for assembling a team. Right. And I really rejected this concept for many years just because I thought it was such stressful to be in a management position. Right. But it's so freaking helpful to have a team of people that help you with a project. And when you start to think more about building a team, you start to think about what are the skill sets I need to make something better than just what I could make, right? 
And you also start to think about things like, okay, if we have a team, how are we going to work on this project? Are we going to use like Basecamp? Are we going to use Google Docs? You think about, okay, what do people need to, you know, do their job well? Do we need to write out like an operating procedure? Do we need checklists, right? That kind of stuff. And what it really enables you to do is it allows you to create something that you yourself could never pull off just because of your own skill set, right? And for me, that's probably one of the bigger learning lessons is seeing these major campaigns. They're always the result of a team of people doing something. Whenever you see something in life and it's like almost astounding that a human being could do it, think about the pyramids, right? That wasn't done by one person. It was done by lots and lots of teams of people, right? You think about something amazing like a MacBook, like this is so elegant, beautiful. It almost feels like an alien made this thing, right? It was done by teams of people, right? Anything incredible in life, that you like marvel at. This is beautiful, amazing. It's almost always done by teams of people. So that's something that I think has been a difficult learning lesson in my own life, but something that when you employ it, it like radically will improve your results with your tabletop, with a project, with a Kickstarter, with anything, honestly, with related to the business world. What was the Um, second one? (laughs) Yeah. So when it comes to crowdfunding, I think that a lot of my more recent lessons have been um, the types of products that do well with Kickstarter and the ones that don't. And that kind of goes, I would say, outside of the tabletop niche, right? But there are definitely themes and genres, almost in the same way that a bookstore has certain genres that tend to be best-selling and other ones that are not so much, or more like esoteric philosophical texts, right? That aren't sure. going to sell as well as like a romance novel, right? Yeah. <laughs> or like Twilight or something like that. So understanding like the genre that you're in really um, can determine your success trajectory in many ways. And um, it's, it's so difficult because I think a lot of people that are creative don't want to fit into a genre, honestly, right? But yeah. at the same time, it, it really simplifies a lot of your marketing. It simplifies a lot of the market. And even if it's something novel, if a customer knows that the game is like this, like Exploding Kittens, right? It's kind of like this. It's a fast play game. They know what to expect going in. It makes things so much easier with marketing in general. I got a buddy, Mark, uh, sorry, Mike uh, Burnett, that uh, he was one of the first people we had on the podcast. And he, he just, he, he, he's in charge of a, uh, like a meetup group, right? So it's one of the largest ones here in the uh, greater Toronto area. And, uh, and he's supported a lot of campaigns, I think in the thousands in his library, literally an entire, the longest wall of his house in the basement is just a never ending library of games. So I asked him, I said, you know, what is the, the one thing that you feel that uh, is the difference between a successful game Kickstarter and an unsuccessful one? And it's interesting. His comment was along those lines where he said, he said theme, but kind of in a little bit of a different way. He said, understanding what your story is, like what it is your offering? He says, because when I read that first paragraph and if it's not clear that the author can clearly explain what this game is and what it's about. And, you know, you know, is it a you know, worker placement or is it uh, maybe a party game? If they can articulate that, I'm not going to jump in because that to me is an indication that there's going to be some issues and messiness all the way down, you know, the track of the creation of that game, which I thought was kind of interesting. So I, I think that's, uh, that, that's some good insight. And I think that is, that does quite frankly pertain to board games as well, right? There's different mm-hmm. categories and themes within uh, even the board game industry, where I think it's important for people to understand where they fit in there, because that's going to make the people that back you um, that much clearer what they're backing, right? And as there are certain people yeah. who like a certain theme or like a certain type of game, it's going to be easier and more efficient to reach those people if you're clear with them. You know what's so interesting about that? I think it's really this marketing concept of familiarity 
when when something seems familiar, we are more willing to take a chance on it, even if it's a little bit different. Which is why the reason people watch like Fast and the Furious number seven or whatever, right? <laughs> it's like, didn't you see this movie before? It's like it's the same, but a little bit different, you know, right? And and kind of is it's like that way because we only actually have a certain number of set story plots in general when it comes to movies, when it comes to TV, like etc. Yeah. And the more you can sort of hit some of those like familiarity buttons, it makes someone feel almost a sense of nostalgia. Yeah, like, oh man, like I used to play games like that. Like, oh, this is kind of interesting, though it's a little bit different. I'll but take a chance on this one, right? Yeah. So it kind of triggers that in your mind and that memory. And then that brand is almost tied to that experience that you've had before. And it's much more than powerful in that way. What else do you have kind of cooking on in the business? Where where are you going from here? Like where does kind of this kind of crowd crux evolve to? What's what's the next step for you? Um, I think, you know, a lot of what I'm doing now is kind of what I talked about before, which is um, figuring out the management side a lot more better when it comes to like creating internal training for the, my team or like standard operating procedures, checklists, um, all that kind of boring stuff, really. Right? Yeah. But it's, it's so it makes um, a well lubricated machine run so much easier. Right. So a lot of my focus right now is on that. But also, um, you know, I'm a huge student of like human psychology, understanding what advertisements get people to take action, like all that kind of stuff. Why do people buy things, et cetera? So I'm always learning and like studying on that as well. Nice. And if somebody wants to, to reach out to you, how best do they contact you? Uh, easiest way is just to start looking on YouTube for my name, Salvador Brigman. You'll probably come across some of my videos. Um, I do videos on like tabletops. I do videos on general marketing, on Kickstarter. But I'm really just trying to be useful and helpful to people and explain things in a way that makes sense to me, right? Because I still think that even though like there's good education information out there, it's not always very well explained. And there's a lot of missing pieces of the puzzle that people don't share with you, right? Um, so maybe like, you know, in the future, I'd love to also, I'm talking about like creating internal training for my team and like, um, formulas we use when it comes to uh, accomplishing tasks, like try to make that stuff more public for people as well. Cause I, that's nothing is like that out there. And it's so frustrating to me knowing that that information and like that, those just understandings can keep someone back. Right. And, um, that's kind of, it's, it really does make me a little bit frustrated, honestly, that that's the case. (laughs) Well, certainly your your videos are, are a pleasure to watch. Uh, again, I encourage anybody to uh, to find you. It's not hard to find you. You type in Salvador, and as soon as I think you get to B-R-I-G, your name immediately pops up, and then there's just a wall of videos that they can choose from. Everything from uh, tips on Kickstarter to, I like the one where you're just talking about being authenticity, right? Uh, here's here's three, three tips on how to be kind of authentic in your approach, which I thought was really cool. Um, yeah. And, and it's, that's so big. Um, people are a lot smarter than you think online and they can just when like you said, reading like the first few sentences of, um, a campaign or seeing you on the video, like they can tell when you're authentic and when you're not, they're so much smarter than like you give people credit for. So people want to know you, right. They, they want to know the real you, not kind of this, uh, a facade that you're putting forward. And I think that, uh, and talking with Jamie Stagmeyer on this is, you know, he had a very similar perspective where in his book, he talks about how he, for a long time, just had his logo. Anytime he did a post, he said it. And then at one point he's like, what am I doing? And he started putting up just a candid shot of himself. Right. So people could 
get behind kind of what the company is and get to the individual and uh, have that more one-on-one connection, which I think is important. Yeah, completely. I mean, there's so much more. Um, I probably went on a few tangents here, but I really appreciate (laughs) you also having me on here. Um, And I think, you know, putting out podcasts like this are one of the best ways you can, you can really help the industry, to be honest. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, and everyone kind of has their own take as a teacher as well. Like I focus on certain things. I'm really into psychology and marketing. I'm sure you focus on certain things. So it's really good to have different voices that are out there. Well, we try to get to bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. On that note, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hopefully we can get you back again sometime and all the best uh, for you and uh, Crowd Crux. Thank you. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Mm